And now, everyone's favorite autodidactic iconoclast, Drew Marshall. I am 100% sure that Mr. Bugliosi has never been introduced with that song. No, I think I, we're I, very I ingenious in coming up with that uh, brilliant introduction. Vincent Bugliosi received his law degree in 1964 in his career at the L.A. County District Attorney's Office. He successfully prosecuted 105 out of 106 felony jury trials, including 21 murder convictions without a single loss. His most famous trial, the Charles Manson case, became the basis of his classic Helter Skelter, the biggest selling true crime book in publishing history. And two of uh, Bugliosi's other books, And the Sea Will Tell and Outrage, also reached number one on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. So no other American true crime writer has ever had more than one book that achieved this ranking. Here's another little uh, tidbit for you. Reclaiming History, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy was a New York Times bestseller and has been heralded as epic and a book for the ages. Mr. Bugliosi also wrote Divinity of Doubt, The God Question. We'll really want to talk to him about that, but not today. Today, we'll only have time to talk about uh, Manson and JFK. It is actually an honor, and I very rarely say that because very few people are an honor to chat with. <laughs> Mr. Bugliosi is on the line with us from California. Sir, how are you today? Okay, Drew. Uh, thank you for all those flattering things you said about me. Out of my 973 questions I have for you in the next 20 minutes, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to start off with this one. How did you lose that one case? Oh, <laughs> Well, it was a burglary case years ago, and I, I don't know. Either the guy was innocent or I failed to meet my burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, I mean, things like that happened. Uh, my record, people, uh, they always uh, say, my God, how did you do that? And I point out, well, you know, these people were all guilty. It wasn't like I was convicting innocent people. Yeah. And, and the conviction rate should be high if the DA does his job and the police do their job, but frequently uh, they don't. And that's why the conviction rate in felony jury trials normally around the country, at least here in the U.S., is around 80%. But it should be in the high 90s. When was the last time you actually spoke with Charles Manson? Oh, geez, that would have been way back in 1971 uh, when the trial was over with. The murders were in 69. The trial was in 1970 and 71. And uh had an interesting conversation with him. He said... Uh, he said to me, you know, Bugliosi, uh, you haven't achieved anything. All you have done is send me back where I came from. We had several conversations, and uh, this was one of them, and we were kind of sarcastic with each other. And I said, yeah, but as far as I know, Charlie, you'd never been in the green room before. The green room is in San, San Quentin where they execute people, although he claims to you know, have come back from the dead and everything. He came, claims to be the second coming of Christ. Anyway, uh, he just... Uh, smiled at that. But the next year, 1972, I'm in my car, and the car radio's on, and I hear where the U.S. Supreme Court 
has set aside the death penalty, made the ruling retroactive, and everyone on death row, there were about 600 people, all of their death penalty sentences were irreducibly reduced from death down to life imprisonment. Uh, and the thought came into my mind that what uh, Manson had told me it turns out to be true. He gets out of prison in March of, uh, when was it, 67, and that's when he went up to the Haight-Ashbury district and started his family up there. He may be responsible for as many as 33 murders, was convicted of nine, and all we've done is send him back to where he came from, which he doesn't mind, by the way. He's totally institutionalized. Most of his life has been behind bars. Mm. He'd prefer to be on the outside. but uh, So in, in a sense, and I hate to say this, Drew, but he's kind of beaten the rap. He's, you know, uh, he has not been executed for what he did. You know, he mentioned you only twice in his closing argument. I want to read to you these uh, these quotes. In his closing argument? Yeah, his closing argument. Yeah, well, he, I, did, he didn't give a he didn't give a closing argument. Well, what was his final speech? Well, he got up on the witness stand outside the president uh, presence of the jury, and the courtroom was packed, and he was talking. Uh, I didn't cross examine him. I didn't want to give him a dry run, but he was speaking to the world press. And uh, okay, so it wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't there, a so formal close. No, well, okay, I got that now. Thank you, I appreciate that. Well, here's what he said: the issues in this case, the issues in this case. The issues are that Mr. Younger is Attorney General, and I imagine he's a good man and does a good job. I don't know him. I can't judge him, but I know he's got me here. He set me in this seat. Mr. Bugliosi is doing his job for a paycheck. That is an issue. He's doing whatever he is doing, whatever he thinks uh, it is right or not. I couldn't say. That's up to him. And then a little bit later, he says, Then I look at the facts that you have brought in front of this court, and I look at the 12 facts uh, that, uh, that are looking at me and judging me. Uh, if I were to judge them, what scale would that balance? Would the scale balance if I was to turn and judge you? How would you feel if I were to judge you? Could I judge you? I can only judge you if you try to judge me. That's a fact. I'm trying to say it as fast as he probably was. The Bugliosi, Mr. Bugliosi, is a hard-driving prosecutor with a polished education. Semantics, words, he's a genius. He's got everything that every lawyer would want to have except one thing, a case. He doesn't have a case. Those are the only two times he mentions you in that big speech. Um, yet you guys, you know, you went a few rounds. I mean, this case went on for, what was it, nine months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it went on, well, the the guilt phase was seven and a half months, and then the penalty phase, whether they get life or death, that was one and a half months. So the total was around nine months, yeah. So, you know, the, the, here's the thing that I find, um, well, there's a number of things I find very, very interesting here. First of all, uh, you and he are born the same year. You're the same age. Right, right, right. And, I mean, was it simply the roll of the dice that separated how you two turned out? I mean, he has, he has, he has an IQ of 121. Yeah. And exceptional verbal skills, some would say. Um, and, and yet, uh, you know, the way he was raised shaped him. The way you were raised shaped you. Was right, that it? Right. Is that it? Oh, I don't think environment is the only thing. I mean, some people are just born bad. I'm not saying that I was born good, but I mean, certainly, <laughs> some people are just bad. And uh, uh, Manson is just, you know, a bad, uh, evil human being. It certainly didn't help him, his uh, environment. But there's many people with the same background as Charles Manson, and they don't end up mass murderers. You know, they end up engineers or uh, or doctors or lawyers. So I, I don't know how all that all plays out. I'm not uh, an authority on stuff like that. But you can't just trace it all back to the environment you know you would join the LAPD in the field 
uh, at the crime scenes. That was rare, was it not, for, for an attorney to kind of get out there like that back in the well, day? The the job of a prosecutor is to present evidence in court gathered by law enforcement agencies. And L.A. is the sheriff's office and LAPD. But he's not restricted to that. And I've always gone out into the field and interviewed witnesses and helped law enforcement put the case uh, together. It's much more effective presenting a case in court that you helped uh, uh, put together. If you rely exclusively on law enforcement, and they do a great job, fine, but if they, do, if they don't do a great no, job... you're hung out to dry, it, yeah. It's legal suicide. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what did you see? Did you see anything while, while going out to the crime scenes that have been burned in, anything that traumatized... For example, there's a guy up here in Canada named Senator Romeo Dallaire. He led the UN peacekeeping mission during the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. And when I spoke with him, I mean, he's he, there's a lot of burned-in stuff in his brain, so much so that it, it really affected him. He, he's been t- problems with alcohol, antidepressants, still on medication today. Was there anything that you saw that really messed with you? Oh, well, uh, when you say it, crime scenes, yeah, I would go there later, but after they had been cleaned up, of course, uh I wasn't even assigned to the Manson case until a couple months later when when, uh, the Manson family became suspects. But uh, seeing the horrible, horrible photographs of the victims, uh, no, I don't think that affected me the rest of my my life, but I never wanted to look at them. But strangely enough, Drew, you'd be surprised if the the fellow prosecutors and clerical personnel would want to come into the office and asked me to show them the, these photographs. Uh, I, I've never been um, uh, immunized to that type of stuff. I've, I've, I've never liked to look at it. Of course, it was part of my job. I had to look at it, but it, it, was, it was just unbelievably horrible. Okay, I grew up in the funeral business. I've, as part of the, the job, uh, part of the family business, I've been to homicide and suicide right. scenes. And, and so I'm fairly desensitized. Yeah. Uh, last night, while I was doing some research on you, I looked at those pictures of the crime scenes. And, um, you know, look, it was ridiculously horrible, but it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. It, it, and, and I'm wondering if, there, if there's a, some sort of a connection here between when all this stuff happened as well as what actually happened. In other words, if that stuff happened today, would it have the impact it had back then? Well, it, it was a huge case. I, I remember, you know, uh, the summer of 69 was also uh, Chappaquiddick. And... Uh, People were coming back uh, from Europe saying that the case was bigger, the Massa case was bigger over there than uh, Chappaquiddick was. It was huge. We had reporters from all over the world. Uh, I think it would be just as big uh, or bigger today. Yeah. No, no, there's no question about it. I think the main reason why this case is so um, continues to be fascinating to people all over the world is that it's part of the most bizarre mass murder case in the recorded annals of American crime. And people uh, back then and now uh, continue to be fascinated by things that are strange and bizarre. And cases don't get any more bizarre than the Manson case. But I don't think it had anything to do uh, with the fact that it was 1969 as opposed to 2013. Well, but was it not sort of the end of the decade of love? That came to an abrupt end, would you say, because of the Manson a well, case that, would that, that be sort argument, of yeah you know, that argument could be made there are some sociological implications to this case uh prior to the manson murders no one had ever identified hippies uh with being um uh, violent uh or murderers 
And then uh, all they identified them with was uh, drugs and uh, uh, free, dr- uh, uh, free love and peace. And then the Manson family comes along looking like hippies, uh, living like hippies, but actually being mass murderers. That was their religion, their cradle, to kill as many people as they could. And that unquestionably shocked the country, and I think it uh, hurt the uh, anti-establishment movement in this country, because the 60s was an age of dissent and anti-establishment fervor. And I know that uh, Joan Didion, in her book uh, about the era called uh, The White Album, said that the 60s came to an abrupt end on August the 9th, 1969. That's the night of the Tate murders. Mm-hmm. ABC's Diane Sawyer said that the Manson murders brought an end, end to the decade of love. So it is possible uh, that the Manson murders was kind of viewed as uh, the counterculture flower uh, gone to seed, and uh, the hippie movement has never recovered from it. Mr. Vincent Bugliosi on the phone with us. He, of course, prosecuted Charles Manson, and he's the author of Helter Skelter, the true story of the Manson murders. Mr. Bugliosi, you know, when I think about the time you put into this, you said this was a full-time deal, seven days a week, sometimes 100 hours per week for two years. Of course. That's got to have an impact on you. Did this case change you at all? <laughs> You asked some very good questions, Drew, that I, I say they're good because I can't answer them, so they must be good, you know. <laughs> uh, did it change me? Not, not that I'm aware of. I mean, even before this case, when I got on a big murder case, I worked on it around the clock. Uh, uh, the Simpson case, you know, I, I could have been a lot tougher on the prosecutors than I was uh, in my book, Outrage. But there were stories that they were, uh, the male and female prosecutors were seen dancing at 2 in the morning at one of these places in L.A. on Sunset Boulevard and spending a weekend up in San Francisco. You don't do that when you're on a big case. You, uh, you're only seen in a couple places, the courtroom, your office, the back seat of the car driving you home. You're working as you have a driver drive you home. And at home, you're not dancing in the middle of the night. That's crazy. You have to devote yourself full time to it. And, and I did that. But I did that with other cases, too. Probably not as much. Well, no, not for any case as long as nine months. Hmm. I've I've worked uh, 100 hours a week on some other cases too. Okay, so you've got to be frustrated with the the uh, the work ethic that you see today. Do you think there is a? I mean, this is kind of a social commentary, I guess, as well. And I know you're yeah. not really into that sort of thing, but right. uh, do you do you look at these punks that are doing what you did back then, and they're they're doing it sort of kind of willy nilly? Well, certainly the. Uh, the Simpson prosecutors did it willy-nilly. There's, there, there's no question about that. They got up and gave their summation. They were totally unprepared. They were up till 4 in the morning on the night that before they gave their summation, working on their summation. Oh, that's, that's good. Uh, yeah. And then, and then I have evidence in my book, Outrage, on the case, you know, where they're saying, I think this, I think that, or, Judge, do you have something here because I can't find it? I mean, oh, it's, it's just incredible. I would have already... Uh, put in several hundred hours on, on my summation, already have gone over it ten times, and on the night before I gave it, I'd go over it a last time uh, and try to get to bed early and get a good night's sleep. But uh, you still have some good prosecutors out there working very, very hard. Uh, I don't know if they're working any less hard now than, than they did years ago, although they certainly fell down on the Simpson case, no question about what, it. What do you think happened to one of the defense attorneys, Ronald Hughes? Well, after the trial, uh, 
one of the members of the Manson family, uh, Sandra Good, said uh, that Ronald Hughes was the first of the retaliation murders, the implication being that the Manson family had murdered Hughes. I don't have any firm belief one way or the other, but if I had to guess, I would say that Hughes was in fact murdered by uh, other members of, of, uh, of uh, the Manson family. His body was eventually found. But it de- deteriorated so much they couldn't do an autopsy, an official yeah, one. Yeah, they couldn't figure out the cause of yeah. death, whether it was homicide, suicide, or accidental, or whatever it was. You know, I, I, what I find interesting in all this, and I, I'm just looking into this last night again, uh, Charles Tex Watson, right? Uh, Dennis Rice, Bruce Davis, who I think was came in later in the scene, Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, all these people, and and there's there's I think there are a couple of others, but I'm not 100 percent sure. They're all born again Christians with ministries now. Does that make your head turn to one side? Well, Manson, uh, he's his own ministry. He hasn't turned to uh, Jesus. He thinks he's, uh, well, he doesn't think he is, but he led people to believe that he was a second coming of Christ. I'm aware of the ministry of Tex Watson. I don't know that the others have their own ministries. Uh, I don't stay that, that close to them at all. No one sends me information on them. I just read about them in the paper like anyone else. But I know Watson definitely has had his ministry. He's also had three children since he's been in custody. But, uh, yeah, they've all turned to Jesus, whether they're sincere uh, or whether they're just doing it because they think they may get an earlier parole. Uh, I don't know. But Manson hasn't changed a bit. Seeing what you've seen, you know, you talk to a lot of cops and they're the same way. Uh, right. the, the pessimism that's there, the cynicism that's there, you know, especially when people get God in prison, you know, they find Jesus or whatever it is. Do you really think, um, I mean, I, it's an unfair question. I'm asking you to, to, to speculate on the legitimacy of their spiritual, you know, thing. Well, I can't do that. You can't, can't do I, that. I, I, no, no, no. I, I can't do that. I can tell you this, that if they are sincere, I envy them because I, uh, uh, I'm an agnostic, you know, a confirmed agnostic. It's amazing the people that don't know what an agnostic is. They, you ask them and they say, well, is that something like an atheist? I said, well, it is in the sense that, an agnostic does not believe in, 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 in God, but he doesn't disbelieve in God either. He doesn't know, you know, mm. but, but they don't know that. They don't even know what a theist is. A theist, as you know, is someone who believes in God. They know what an atheist is, by the way, you know, that he doesn't believe in God. But I, I'm an agnostic, and uh, I wrote the book, Divinity of Doubt, on agnosticism. I, I like to tell people that uh, uh, I have someone kind of bright on my side. At least most people think he's kind of bright. His name is Einstein, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he uh, he was an agnostic. Uh, now and then he'd say things that would imply that maybe he believed in God, you know, like God does not play dice with the universe, which implies the uh, presupposed existence of God. But the only time I ever saw him where he specifically addressed himself to that issue, he wrote a letter, and it's in the Princeton Ar- Archives, wrote, wrote a letter to a friend in New York City. He says, on the issue of religion, you can call me an agnostic, he said. Well, we have got to get you back on our show to talk about uh, this other book of yours, Divinity of Doubt, The God Question, and uh, we'll certainly do that. But just before we uh, say goodbye to you here, we talked a lot about Charles Manson and Helter Skelter, but this this, uh, book on JFK, how many pages did this book have again? Well, uh, it got out of hand. It ended (laughs) up uh, 1,650 pages called Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and then the 
The CD at the end is another 958 pages, the equivalent of about 13 volumes of 400-page books. Uh, here's a review. The review is all over, all over are uh, at a minimum that it's the, um, uh, uh, the uh, definitive book. But here's a U.K. review from, um, what is it, the, um, hmm, the Telegraph in London. Oh, yeah. Reclaiming history is the final word on the Kennedy assassination. It sets out to, rec- to recapture the assassination from the conspiracy theorists and succeeds so triumphant- triumphantly that only the most demented reader could doubt its conclusions. You know, you were talking about Helter Skelter before. It was the biggest selling true crime book ever. In Cold Blood is number two. But when I ever promoted that book, I just talked about uh, uh, oh, what was in it. And like Outrage on the Simpson case, I, I never boasted about it. But I, I find it difficult uh, not to boast about reclaiming history yeah. because it, it's, uh, it's, it's just an, an unbelievable book. And the sense is not just that it's the definitive book, but it's the final word. Uh, L.A. Times said that. Uh, a member of the Warren Commission staff said that. It's the final word. Okay, now I've got to I've got to bring in my engineer in this conversation because he he kind of likes this conspiracy stuff out yeah. there, right? And yeah, he, well, do it's he, much more interesting. It's much more interesting. But the Warren Commission agreed with pretty much what you had said, and you agree with the Warren Commission. Uh, right. Now people are going to say, "Well, you guys were in bed with each other. You guys were in cahoots with each other, and you guys were." Yeah, of know, course. Yeah. yeah. So Tim, I mean, you're talking to the man here. And, yeah. and are you really going to sit here and say there's no way Oswald did this by himself? Well, here we go. You've won 105 out of 106. I guess it's going to be 106 <laughs> out of 107. <laughs> I just, you know what? There's just something about the whole, all the different conspiracy things, all the different questions. I just don't think it can ever be definitive. And, Mike, you're, you're a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> And my guess That's is you're, you're a lot more connected to all the information than I would that be, would as, be agreed. As, as a casual guy. Yeah. But, you know, things like, you know, he was shooting with a gun known as the Widowmaker, not because it was so good, but because it was so useless, it would make widows out of the people shooting it. And yeah, but it, it did turn out to be the murder weapon, though. Yeah, and, and the photographer, the video photographer who was facing the grassy knoll, his film somehow disappeared. <laughs> Right? Isn't that one of the no, theories? They, oh, no, 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 no. That, <laughs> where, where, where did you get that story? Some photographer disappeared? No, no, no. his film disappeared. Zapruder's oh, film. No, film, no film were, of anyone on the grassy knoll there. No, no, someone there. facing the grassy knoll. There was so Zapruder. you're saying, they're oh, saying there was somebody who had, who had a, a film going, yeah, who was facing, facing the, the other grassy. direction. Now, who, where did that information come from, Tim? Yeah, um, but that, but that TMZ. Did you get that from a Cracker Jack box? TMZ. That guy didn't exist. Okay. Uh, do, do, do you have a couple more moments so I could summarize why there's no conspiracy here? Sure, go All ahead. All right, I'm waiting. Okay, well, it, it'll take a couple minutes. <laughs> in the book, obviously, 1,650 pages. Yeah, can you yeah. summarize 1,650 pages Reduce in it down to the 900. Two Let me just mention a couple things here. The Warren Commission and the House Select Committee. Warren right. Commission for an entire year, House Select Committee for three years. They employed 400 and 250 people, respectively, to work on this thing. They both concluded that there was no credible evidence that said that the CIA or mob or any other group was involved in the assassination. Just unsupported allegations, wild allegations, speculation. Okay, you can't ignore that. When you find no evidence of something, that's very powerful circumstantial evidence that that evidence does not exist. exist. Let's go on to the second point. They found no evidence that Oswald was ever associated with any of the groups 
that were believed to be behind the assassination. The FBI checked every breath this guy ever breathed from the moment he returned back from the Soviet Union on, when was it, June 13, 1962, up to the date of the assassination. Found no connection he ever had in any way, in person, by telephone, letter, carrier pigeon, or any other way that he ever had with any of these groups. Third point, and I'm going to try to wrap this up quickly. Let's assume that one of these groups wanted to kill the president. Uh, I find that... Uh, that assumption uh, very, very far out and far-fetched. But let's make that assumption. Uh, Oswald would have been one of the last people on the face of this earth whom they would have chosen to do their bidding for him. Not a great shot. He was a sharpshooter, but not an expert shot. Had a $12 mail-order rifle. Uh, Unbelievably unreliable Here's a guy, here's a guy that uh, defects to the Soviet Union pre-Gorbachev. I mean, even today, who in the heck defects to Russia? He gets over there, wants to become a Soviet citizen. They turn him down. What does he do? He slashes his wrist, tries to commit suicide. And I'm going to be sarcastic here now. Just the type of person that the CIA or mob would want to rely upon to commit the biggest murder uh, in American history. Final. To me, that's the proof. That's the proof that he didn't take the shot. Like that, to me, and oh, okay. you know what? We'll I'll agree to disagree. If you want me to, I will. If you give me the time. Okay. <laughs> final point. Final point. All right. After, after Oswald shoots Kennedy in Dealey Plaza, okay, and leaves the book depository building, you have to know that if the CIA or mob were behind Oswald, there would have been a car waiting for him to drive him to his death. You have to know that. Instead, we know that Oswald was out on the street with $13 in his pocket trying to flag down buses and cabs. Uh, that, that fact alone tells you that there was no, no conspiracy here. Uh, I grant you what I was telling you presupposes Oswald's guilt. There's no question about Oswald's guilt. In reclaiming history, I set forth 53 separate pieces of evidence pointing toward, towards his guilt. You can have one or two or three or four pieces of evidence pointing towards guilt, even though you're innocent, not 53 pieces. <laughs> I'll give you five quick pieces of evidence. All right. Oswald's rifle, the Manlicher Carcano rifle, was proven by firearms experts to be the murder weapon. So the weapon that killed John F. Kennedy... Uh, was owned and possessed by Lee Harvey Oswald. After the shooting in Dealey Plaza, Oswald was the only worker at the Book Depository building who fled the building. Forty-five minutes later, he shot and killed Officer J.D. Tippett of the the, uh, Dallas Police Department, who stopped him on the street for questioning. Two people saw Oswald uh, kill Tippett, Several others saw him at the car at the murder scene. There was a total that either saw him at the car, saw him shoot Tippett, or saw him running running from the scene. A half hour later at the Texas Theater, he resists arrest by pulling his gun on the arresting officer. Uh, During a 12-hour interrogation uh, period, over over a three-day period, when he was interrogated by the Dallas Police Department, he told one lie after another, one provable lie after another, all of which show, of course, an unmistakable consciousness of guilt. I got 53 pieces of evidence against Oswald. And what I can tell you, uh, it's your sound man or whoever it is, start out with the Warren report, and then if you still believe that Oswald might be innocent, 
pick up reclaiming history if you're a weightlifter can pick it up weighs seven and a half pounds <laughs> You are amazing. Amazing. All right, listen, we've got to move on, but a couple things before we go. First of all, I I would love to have you back on our show again. You have been one of my favorite guests. Thank you, Mr. Bugliosi. Okay, I appreciate it, Drew. Listen, I'm honored to be on your show. You don't have to be honored to, to uh, interview me. Well, I am. I am. It's just a big love fest here. Okay, the other thing is, final question about the Manson stuff. Okay. M. Scott Peck wrote a book called People of the Lie, where it was basically a, a book about what is evil. And you have used that word a lot uh, when it comes to the Manson stuff. Because of what you saw, because of what you experienced in the whole Manson family murders, have you been convinced at all? Because I, that's, that's one of the reasons I have actually wanted to interview Charles Manson. I, I struggle believing in supernatural stuff. I struggle believing in a god. But if I experienced or encountered supernatural evil, that would then ipso facto mean that there is such a thing as supernatural good. There'd be supernatural, period. So it would help, it would help my faith. What's that? Isn't that, isn't that a non sequitur? Just because there's supernatural evil, that there has to be supernatural good too? Well, there's a whole lot to unpack there, but uh, yeah, okay. in, in my okay. world, it, it I, would I'm mean. Sorry that. to interrupt you. No, that's all right. So Go would ahead. you Go say? Ahead. Would you say? Just a real quick response. Real quick response. Would you say that there is such a thing as supernatural evil? Well, I, I'm an agnostic, so I don't believe in the supernatural. But I do believe that there's such a thing as evil, of course. Uh, but are you saying the evil comes simply out of the human heart or because of mental illness? I don't know. Uh, the genesis could be uh, from all types of sources. But, I mean, uh, I can't define the word evil any better than Webster's Dictionary can. Right. But uh, when you have uh, an eight-and-a-half pregnant woman... Sharon Tate yeah. saying, "Please let me live, so I can have my uh, my baby." And uh, Susan Atkins told me that she told Sharon, "Look, bitch, uh, I don't have any mercy on you. You're going to die." Uh, and then sta- and then stabbed her how many times? Uh, well, she had 16 stab wounds. Uh, now, if that's, that's not evil, what what, what, what adjective what would you use? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Listen, we should just do a show together, you and I. You know that could. Okay. Well, you're great. You ask tough questions, Drew. Tough questions. Mr. Bugliosi, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Drew. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Mr. Bugliosi, Vincent Bugliosi, prosecuted Charles Manson, is the author of Helter Skelter: The True Story of the Manson Murders. Something I, for some reason, have been fascinated with ever since. Uh, I stole the book from my sister's uh, room. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, I want to tell you about the Drew Marshall Show 1250 special. You ready for this? For 1250, that's right, only $12.50, we'll mention your organization's name, website, and a brief description. Did you catch that? During each show, we'll read out your organization's name, website, and a brief description for only $12.50. Now, obviously, there's no point in doing that only once during a four-hour show, so we'll read your advertisement four times per show for an entire month, and each time we do it, it'll only cost you $12.50. It's kind of like putting an advertisement up on every church bulletin in the GTA, except you don't have to get permission from that grumpy old lady at the front desk. Now look, because there are limited spots available for our 1250 special, why don't you call us right now, toll-free, on 877-JOY-1250. Now sure, we're right in the middle of things here in the show, but if you call us right now, toll-free, on 877-JOY-1250, we'll take your name and number and call you back on Monday to sign up for the Drew Marshall Show 1250 special. This is nuts. Are you sure we want to do this? How am I supposed to make any money?